0: the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a five-part series of messages that John Blanchard presented at Moody Keswick Bible Conference 1982. John Blanchard is a preacher, evangelist, author, former co-director of Christian Ministries, and an international conference speaker. Now, here is John Blanchard on Today in the Word radio. Well, let me invite you to turn this morning to the third chapter of uh, the letter or the epistle of James, and you will know this week we are going through the whole of the letter. First of all, just reading it through uh, chapter by chapter, reading one chapter each morning, and then uh, we are turning to one particular chapter each morning and studying it, uh, uh, well, at a certain uh, depth at least. We're taking, if you like, a helicopter ride over the epistle James, A helicopter is a remarkable aircraft. It has the ability, of course, to go straight forward. It also has the ability to stop and hover over a particular place and zoom down in upon it and remain over that place for a little while. Now, that's exactly what we're doing uh, right here in this letter. We're flying over it quite quickly as we read the chapter. And then we're stopping the helicopter at a certain point and hovering over there for a while and having a close look at what James is saying. Well, the choice of the particular parts over which we're stopping and where we're studying is very arbitrary. It's a matter of personal choice, we trust, however, uh, guided and controlled by the Holy Spirit. And not to keep you waiting any longer, today we're going to look at a part in the early section of chapter 3. In fact, from the middle of verse 2 to the first half of verse. Five. Now, that really is arbitrary. Uh, let me defend myself a little by saying that, of course, uh, James did not put in the chapter headings. Uh, he never wrote chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 and so forth, nor did he number the verses. He just wrote the whole thing straight out from beginning to end. And incidentally, much of it would have been written without even a break between the words, let alone any kind of punctuation. We are quite at liberty to do this kind of surgical job on the text that we have before us and not feel that we're slicing up James's thoughts uh, in any way. As a matter of fact, uh, I'm going to suggest, of course, having thought about it and studied it carefully, is a perfectly legitimate way in which to break up this chapter. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Behold... We put bits in the horses they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so, the town is a little member and boasteth great things. As I've said, the choice of... Uh, Material for study, section for study in these days is very arbitrary, uh, one per chapter. And yet there's a link between our previous study and the one on which we're now embarking. Our last study, which you'll recall, was back in James chapter 2 and verse 11. It went on from verses 8 to 11. It ended with our contemplating the overwhelming grace of God that brought us into a position of justification of being right with God in spite of the fact that all of us were but are lawbreakers. It's so easy at times to think of our lawbreaking as being something that happened in the past. And this is uh, sometimes exaggerated and emphasized by a wrong understanding of that verse, says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Of course, the difficulty with the word come is that it's exactly the same whether it's in the past tense or the present. What we need to recognize is that the second verb, come, is in the present of the present tenses. It is all have sinned and continue to come short of the glory of God. That's what Paul is saying. And we ended at yesterday's study overwhelmed with the perception of the truth that God has brought us into a position of justification, of being right with Him, and that that justification deals with our sin, past, present, and future, and can in no way now be affected by the quality of our lives. Of course, we would need, if we were having a rounded study, to go on to talk about sanctification and so forth. Uh, But we were concerned just with that one issue. Now, trying to link these two, just look at verse 10 of chapter 2. Whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, in one point he is guilty of all. And then look at chapter 2. Uh, chapter 3, forgive me, the beginning of verse 2 in chapter 3. In many things we offend all. Or in many things we all make mistakes. Verse 10, if we just offend in one point, we're guilty of breaking the law. But the truth of the matter is, chapter 3 and verse 2, in many things we offend all. Now, from that statement, James isolate one area in which our failure is most frequent and that is in our use of the tongue and the section before us here really begins at uh, verse 1 and goes right on to the end of verse 12 and that deals with the tongue from James chapter 3 and verse 1 to the end of verse 12, all dealing with the same subject. And I'm giving our study this morning the same heading that is given to that particular section in James in the New International Version. I've simply lifted it from there. Taming the Tongue is the title of our study this morning. Now, let me repeat. The whole section goes on to verse 12. That would give you the complete picture and the part we're looking at this morning. An introduction. Uh, the other studies you will be able to get uh, in the uh, in the commentary and not hearers only, though I realize that will be exasperating to any who uh, are not here live and are hearing it by tape because you will not be able to get other volumes. Let me give you two headings to hold our study together this morning and the first is this. James tells us here that we must recognize a practical fact. We must recognize a practical, if any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Now, a superficial reading of that might suggest uh, that James is contradicting himself. He says, verse 2, in many things we offend all, or as the NIV has it, we all stumble in many ways. Now he is uh, putting forward a position where someone apparently would be a man. Now, is he contradicting himself? We all make many mistakes. We all offend. We all sin. But here comes the hint about a perfect man. Is he suggesting that there is such a person on the earth? Or is he advocating a kind of shortcut to perfection by the right use of the tongue? Is James really saying, now, use your tongue correctly and you'll be perfect. You will have achieved perfection if you use your tongue in a perfect way. Of course not. That would be at variance with the whole tenor of Scripture and at variance with what James himself says elsewhere. Let me introduce you to three biblical concepts in order to penetrate the surface of what James is saying here. The first is what I'm going to call mystery. There is a mystery here. You will know that there are many different views on what the theologians call perfectionism. The idea that a man can perfection here upon the earth. And all kinds of of, uh, theological concepts come into that. Uh, whether it's a matter of substitution or eradication, or whether it's something that happens gradually, whether it's something that happens immediately, is there some kind of that lifts us into a perfect position? What do we make of John Wesley's uh, doctrine of perfect love and so forth? The one thing that we cannot escape as we're wandering around in all of that morality is this, that the Bible commands us to be perfect. There is no escaping that. The all-embracing edict that was to govern all of Israel's behavior was this. You must be blameless or perfect for your God. Deuteronomy 18 and verse 13. Or again, going to the New Testament. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount. How did Jesus sum that up? Be perfect even as your father is perfect. Now, there seems no room for maneuver there, whether we're looking at Old Testament Israel or at uh, New Testament Israel and to the Lord teaching his disciples, the injunction is the same. Be, doesn't seem to be any kind of let out, whatever. But the Bible is equally clear that no one is perfect. Some people may think they are. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said he'd only met one was a perfect nuisance and uh, you can understand exactly the kind of person he had in mind and you probably married her uh him <laughs> so here we have a mystery the bible be perfect open the old testament be perfect open the new testament be perfect and then we look around and no one is if we say That we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us, John says in 1 John 1, 8. And not only does the Bible teach us that, but Christian biography confirms it. Whenever you read honest biography, I don't mean a great deal of the modern stuff today, which I believe is frankly dishonest, is, well, the word is triumphalistic, Uh, trying to project a view that says we've arrived, we've found it, we've got it, we're there. Everything in the garden is coming up roses. Well, that is nonsense. It sells books. It doesn't happen to be the truth. A Friend of mine said the Christian roses, including the thorns. That's the truth of the matter, of course. But you read honest biography. I'm not suggesting there is no honest biography around today. I'm just suggesting there isn't much of it. But go back uh, fifty. Years, 200, 300 years, and read honest biography, and you will discover that the greater a man gets, the smaller he believes himself to be. The closer to God, the more conscious he is of his distance from God. And there's something of the element of mystery about this. God is fitting the believer for heaven. And the closer he gets to heaven, the more disqualified he feels. A Christian is commanded to grow in grace, and yet his eternal standing with God does not depend one bit on whether he grows rapidly or slowly. Satan is defeated, and yet he's permitted by a loving, sovereign God constantly to attack and to bring them into disobedience and dismay and disgrace and defeat. Our old nature is not removed at conversion, nor is it refined after conversion. Let's remember that. Of course, at least it's got a lilt to it and a lovely tune and so forth. Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me, all his wondrous compassion and purity. O thou spirit divine, all my nature refined till the beauty of Jesus be seen. In me. It may be good melody, it's terrible theology. Our nature is never refined. The Christian's old nature remains as implacably opposed to the things of God as ever it was. A great moment in a Christian's life. One of the steps forward a Christian can make is when he discovers he's incapable of taking the greatest steps backward. All of that's a mystery. It's just a whole bunch of paradoxes. But the fact of the matter is that the closer a man gets to God, the more conscious he is of his distance from him. You take um, the Apostle Paul, writing uh, in the course of his epistles, these biographical notes. First of all, he says that he is the least of the apostles. We would not rank him there. We would rank him as the greatest. He says, well, now, I'm the least of the apostles. A little bit later on, he says that he's less than the least of all the saints. So he's not that uh, uh, eclectic, exclusive company of apostles, he's now broadening it out to all the Christians in the world, and he's saying, and I'm, well, actually, I'm less than the least. Of course, you can't be less than the least, but Paul obviously had Irish ancestry. Uh, That's why he was making that kind of statement. He said, I'm less than the least. And then he gets a bit further on. He gets more mature. He gets closer to heaven and closer to God. And he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I'm the worst. Do you see the progression? This is how Paul goes nearer and nearer and nearer and nearer to God. And this is how his view of himself goes. I'm the least of the apostles. I'm less than the least of all Christians. That's the paradox. It's all part of the paradox of perfection. Everywhere in the Bible we see perfection demanded. Nowhere in the world do we see perfection demanded. That's the paradox. It's a mystery. And faced with this, what does man do? Well, he tries to rationalize. He either lessens his own view of God in order to accommodate his own weakness, or he slackens his efforts because God's standards seem so unca- incapable of attainment. He does those two things. He either Lessens God's standards to make it a little bit easier for himself. Or he says, what's the point? I just can never make it. I will not try. Well, as we shall see, the biblical answer to it lies elsewhere. But let me lodge that first word in your mind and your notebooks. Mystery. Here's the second. Maturity. Maturity takes us directly to the text. Remember, James has just admitted we all fail frequently. Now he's going to touch on an area where we all fail so often. So many charges can be laid against us in this area. I worked in the law courts in Guernsey and the Channel Islands off the south coast of England for 13 years before I came into the preaching ministry. Three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, a magistrate's court was one of the courts that sat and, uh, in the particular office in which i worked we had a copy of the crime sheet as it was called delivered to us it was the uh, the running order for the cases to be heard in court that day And of course living on a small island and being as nosy and everybody else's business as everybody is uh, you can just imagine what a fascinating thing it was to have the crime sheet delivered to you before the court actually assembled and you would, of course, first of all, go quickly down the name column to see if you knew anybody. And that would give you an evidence in court that day. And then you would look at the charges. And they would be all sorts of things, literally from not having a light on your bicycle to murder or whatever. And such a variety of alleged crimes and offences just a bewildering variety of them in the course of one day and certainly of one week or one year. On the biblical crime sheet, the tongue is one of the... And when we look into the column that says now, what are the crimes of which the tongue is accused, then the list becomes enormous. Dishonesty, unkindness, flattery, impurity, blasphemy, pride, exaggeration temper, greed, slander, boasting, and so on. An almost endless list, and the tongue is accused of all of them. Now, what can we say to that, and what should we do? Let me suggest two things. First of all, we should be realistic. We should face up to the fact that however far we've gone in the Christian life, however mature we may consider ourselves to be, whatever positions we may hold, whatever ministry we may we are still capable of all of these sins we are still we never get beyond committing them first trip i ever paid to the states was about ago and it was several years after that before i began to return to this country regularly and i went to a, a little community called pinehurst idaho and uh, one day the pastor of the church took me out to Log and to the ski slopes there. And uh, we stood there at the side watching these people coming down uh, the mountain. And an apparent novice, it was obvious from, uh, that he was that from the way he just got on the skis and began to push off, uh, he started coming down the mountain. And sure enough, before he'd got very further, he soon was tumbling base over apex and falling all the way down the hill. And uh, I uh, looked at the preacher and was talking about this and said, you must get quite a lot of that among beginners here. And he said, yes, you get a lot of it among beginners. And he added this, and you never get so expert that you can't do it. <laughs> I've never forgotten that. You never get so expert that you can't do it. You never get so advanced as a Christian that there are sins you can't commit. What does Paul say, 1 Corinthians 10, 12? So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. You'll be more familiar with it. Let him stand, take heed, lest he fall. We never become so expert that we are incapable of stumbling into sin. So we must be realistic. Secondly, we must be resolute. That is, we must be resolute in our determination. Prove to get better. We must work at it. If I had returned to Mount Kellogg two years later and seen that same person coming down the same slope, I would not expect him to make the same mistake, at least not to make it so often. I would expect there to be... If I went back two years later, I would expect that man to be a better skier, still capable of falling. Why, you will have seen them recently in the World Cup runs in in Germany and Switzerland and Italy and elsewhere. Swear they would never get up again. Uh, but these are professionals. These are the experts. These are the, the champions of the world. And there they are, crashing through barriers and flinging themselves headlong over spectators and whatever. They're still capable of making mistakes. But we should expect improvement. And this is where James's word perfect comes in. It's the word teleos in the Greek. One who reaches maturity or attains a goal. It's the same kind of language that you have in Hebrews 1, where we're urged to go on to maturity. We're to be adults, not infants. The tragedy is that so many Christians can point to no real progress in understanding, in behavior, in holiness, in spirituality, in maturity. To move around in the right circles doesn't necessarily mean that you're getting anywhere. It's better to go in a straight line than the best of circles. Because getting in a straight line, you're going somewhere. You can just move in the right circles and be getting nowhere. Can I ask you whether there's any real progress being made in your Christian life? It really doesn't matter how young or you are. We have some senior citizens here, some really senior citizens here. We uh, got some ages given to us, those who are staying in the lodge on uh, whatever night it was that we were introducing uh, ourselves. Believe me, we have some citizens here. You've got some problems about what happened in New Testament times. You ask one or two of the folks staying at the lodge. They were there. Uh, we've got some really old folk here. But however old, however young you may be, is there any real progress being made? I don't just mean learning more things from the Scriptures. I'm always impressed when I come to America that many more people take notes. They come along toting big Bibles and notebooks and a battery of pencils and paper, and uh, take notes all the time. I'm impressed by that. That's done much more here than in my country. It's one thing to take notes. It's another thing to make progress. I'm not saying ignore one and aim for the other. I'm saying. We should be realistic. We should be resolute. Well, that under, under maturity. Here's the third word, mastery. James says that the man who is. Is able to keep his whole body in check. Or as the. King James' version, has it able also to bridle the whole body. Of course, James, and this is the point we need to be clear, is not even hinting that such a person exists. He's not saying, let me take you to a man who has controlled his tongue completely and keeps his whole body and personality in check. I know such a man, let me introduce you to him. No, he's not even suggesting that. But the point he's making is clear. If a man could check his tongue, he would be able to control his whole body. The tongue is a slippery customer, literally and spiritually. And the next section, James, is to ram home this one point about the constant failure of the tongue. Man fails right there. Do you know man's first recorded Words after his from Eden? Well, the first word that man spoke after he'd been expelled from Eden that's recorded for us was this, I don't know. Do you know who said it? Do you know what the question was? Where's your brother Abel? Cain said, I don't know. The first recorded word that man spoke after his expulsion from the Garden of Eden. Doesn't that tell us something? When Isaiah had that extraordinary vision of the glory of God, his immediate reaction was, Woe unto me. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips! I'm undone. Isaiah 6 and verse 5. Was that an admission of his most frequent failure he didn't just say woe is me for i am undone he added and i'm a man of unclean lips i am undone I'm a sinner i've seen god's glory i recognize my sinfulness and then the one area of sinfulness that he mentions is the use of his tongue conversely the other side of the coin when the apostle peter is speaking about the of perfection, he says this he did no sin well, now that covers everything. We could say he did no sin, period. But Peter adds something. He did no sin, neither was guile or found in his mouth. Now, why did Peter add? You, you don't need to add anything. He did no sin. Well, that says it all. Isaiah saying, Woe is me, I am undone. That says it all. I've seen the glory of God. Recognize my sinfulness, period. No. He says, and I'm adding this. I'm a man of unclean lips. Peter speaks of the Lord Jesus, says he's perfect. He never did any sin. And in case someone should say, oh, come on. There would be the occasional slip of the tongue. And Peter said, no, not even a slip of the tongue. 1 Peter 2 and verse 22. Now, what is the point James is making? Surely it's this, that if a Christian is to aim at holiness, he will need to take special care of the use of his tongue. And because he has no innate power of his own to control it, he will need continually to pray with the tongue. Psalm 141 and verse 3, Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. We must recognize a practical Now, secondly, we must recognize a powerful force. We must recognize a practical fact. Secondly, we must recognize a powerful force. And yet again, James is going to reinforce his argument by a picture, his argument by an illustration. You know, the whole of the letter of James is a picture gallery. I found it so fascinating in all of those seemingly endless hours of study to discover that again and again James uses illustrations, pictures. He's an artist in the whole of Scripture at illustrating what he's saying. And uh, the third chapter of James is the most crowded room in the whole of the art gallery. And uh, you can see them here and they hardly need any comment uh, from me. We put bits in horses' mouths, that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Here is the surging power of that great, powerful animal, and all of that power is by just a tiny little piece of metal, only a matter of ounces in weight. And he goes on, Behold also the ships, which, though they be so great, and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about Helm, whithersoever the governor listed, using our language today and our technology, here is a massive supertanker discharging thousands of tons. And that supertanker controlled by the movements of a comparatively small rudder. Now, the temptation is to add our own illustrations to that and say, and yes, and here we are on the sea of life, and the winds come and the storms come, and all of those things, and our ship needs to be guided correctly. Well, Uh, that's right around the parable of the good samaritan and saying now the donkey had four legs the first one meant this and that and so forth and he gave the innkeeper two coins and uh, uh, one of them is this and one of them is that and when he said i will return this is a reference to the second coming now that's that's explaining stuff it's baloney as far as exposition is concerned it's got nothing to do with the scripture uh the story of the good samaritan has got nothing to do with any of those things it was an illustration of who your neighbor is and you're not to press all of those points out of Scripture like squeezing. James is only making one point here. All he is saying is this. A small object can control an enormous force. That's all he's saying. That's the one point he's A tiny little bit controls an enormous horse. A small rudder controls a huge horse. Let me underline the point by saying that James isn't here speaking about the wickedness of the tongue. Uh, If we were to go on and study the following verses as we do in the uh, the commentary itself, uh, then you would see that he does talk about the wickedness of the tongue. But the point is he's just its effect. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts, as we have it in the NIV. Even so, verse 5, the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. That's all he said. It's actually difficult to know whether when James says boasteth great things, he's talking about boasting in a good sense or a bad sense. We normally think about it in in a bad sense. We say that evil, it's arrogance, it's pride, and so forth. But the word likewise that James uses does throw us back to the illustrations about the bit and the rudder. And there's nothing evil about the bit or the rudder. In fact, if we had to say there was an influence one way or the other, we'd have to say it was a good influence. It would be better, however, to say it's neutral. After all, a tug on the bit, if the the rider makes a mistake can turn the horse over it. And if the pilot makes a mistake in his use of the rudder, then he wrecks the ship and doesn't bring it to harbor. So he can use it badly or he can use it for a good purpose. All of that underlines the one thing that James is merely saying, a little member like the tongue has tremendous power. That's all he's saying. He's not saying at this point, it's always bad. Nor is he saying it's always good. All he's saying is. So let me try to cover both angles. uh, The good and the evil. And to do them in the reverse order. The tongue can have an evil influence. The Bible is clear on this. Let me give you the scriptures. Psalm 52. Your tongue plots destruction. It is like a sharpened razor, you who practice deceit. Proverbs 10, 11, violence overwhelms the mouth of the wicked. Proverbs 15 and verse 1, a heart stirs up anger. And then looking at history outside of scripture, how much evil has been stirred up by the tongues of men like Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin and Idi Amin, like them over the years. Who can tell the misery, the heartache, the bloodshed, the cruelty. And then what about the evil power of the tongue to break marriages and destroy churches and wreck reputations and breed distrust and motivate violence? I was preaching in Norway some years ago and was traveling down one of the beautiful fjords in June one year and we were right at a point in the fjord where the cliffs just seemed to tower up vertically from the water right up to the heavens and i was admiring all of this and a norwegian gentleman i was speaking to was telling me all about that area and i said to him it must look absolutely marvelous when it's covered with snow in the winter and he said yes it is but he said you know there comes a point in the spring when that beginning to melt is so delicately poised that the sound of a human voice echoing along the fjord can bring it down. The sound of a human voice can bring down an avalanche of thousands of snow, bringing destruction and even death. And I thought, what an illustration that is. The sound of a human voice can bring an avalanche of destruction, disaster, and death. Be aware of the evil power that can be unleashed with the tongue. Secondly, of course, the tongue can have not an evil influence, but an excellent influence. Scripture again first Proverbs 10 and verse 11, from which we've already quoted about the evil influence. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. Well, what a lovely phrase. Violence overwhelms the mouth of the wicked, but the mouth of the is a fountain of life. Who can measure? If we cannot measure the evil that has flown from human lips, who can measure the blessing, the good that has flown, poured from men's lips? Think of all the love and comfort and encouragement and wisdom that has been given as men have spoken to each other. Think of those who've boldly spoken the truth of the gospel at the risk of their own lives. Those in New Testament times. Those beyond that. Those who were martyred rather than their faith. Others who've uprooted tyrants from their thrones by the power of the human voice. Mary, Queen of Scots, said that she was more afraid of the tongue of John Knox than of 10,000 fighting men. Think of the millions of times. That this tiny little member, the human tongue, has been used in the greatest message of all to proclaim the glorious gospel of salvation. And think of the multitudes of people, no man can number, of every tribe and nation, of every corner of this earth, who have been brought to a saving knowledge of Christ through listening to the sound of a human voice. And let me add this: that the influence of the human voice, of the tongue, of what we say, is not only powerful, it's lasting. One of the stories I know in that regard concerns a man called Luke Short, a New England farmer, came over to this country, from civilization, and uh, lived here a hundred years of age and still unconverted. He was working in his field one day and he got to thinking about his long life and he began to have a little reminiscence, went back over the long years here and then back in the old country and then back to his childhood and back to the time when he was a teenager And he remembered living in the little town of Dartmouth on the south coast of England and hearing a preacher by the name of John Flavel, one of the great Puritan preachers. And he remembered words that John Flavel had preached 85 years before. And he thought about those words, sitting there in his field, up in New England. And there and then, sitting 85 years after the preacher had finished his sermon, Luke Short was converted. The powerful, lasting influence of the human voice. I would find it difficult to come across a more vivid illustration of the encouragement and as a warning. Scripture says again, Proverbs 10 and verse 20: the tongue of the righteous. Is choice silver. Now, some of us have gold in our mouths. The Bible wants to know whether we've got silver. The tongue of the righteous is like choice silver. Your tongue is mine, an instrument of righteousness, of purity. Godliness, of truth, of peace, and of joy. When you go to the doctor for a checkup, you may not think there's anything wrong, but it's just a regular and wise thing to do. Almost certainly, one of the things that he will say to you is, Show me your tongue. Cease to be amazed, uh, just uh, changing the organ of the body for a moment. How when my doctor, when I go for a checkup every two years, uh, spends a lot of time looking into my eyes. And looking into my, I don't mean he, like that, I mean he gets that little instrument out and peers in and looks. And then starts describing things that are going on all over my body because of what he's seeing in my eyes. And I'm no less amazed when he says, now let me see your... And a doctor... We have doctors in the congregation this morning. A doctor can tell a great deal if you show him your tongue. And I believe that Dr. James this morning the Holy Spirit's direction says to you and to me, my Christian brother, my sister, show me your tongue. Show me your tongue. And from your tongue, I can tell a great deal With God. Francis Ridley Havergal says, Take my voice and let me sing always only for my King. And let them be filled with messages from Thee. Now, the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the lasting covenant make you perfect in every good work to do his will working in you that which is well pleasing in his sight through jesus christ to whom forever and ever amen you've been listening to the today in the word radio podcast and one of five messages John Blanchard presented at Moody Keswick Bible Conference 1982. John Blanchard is a preacher, evangelist, former co-director of Christian Ministries in Surrey, England, and an international conference speaker. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, the Moody Bible Institute.